everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Andrew Hobbs about his examination of the provincial press in Victorian England, entitled A Fleet Street in Every Town, the Provincial Press in England, 1855 to 1900. Andrew, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Good to, good to be with you, Mark. Well, it's good to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. So I'm a, I'm a senior lecturer at a university in the northwest of England, the University of Central Lancashire. Uh, and my research is about the, the history of journalism, particularly the history of, of local newspapers in the 19th century. It's a very interesting topic. And one of the things I enjoyed about your book was you show the many ways in which it was just such a, a fascinating uh uh, subject and, and I, I especially like the fact that you're going about it both as a as a study of this these uh, of, of newspapers as historical artifacts, but also you're studying so much more. You're studying their audience. You're studying uh, their production. What was it that led you to choose this as a topic? It goes back a long way, really. It's kind of my my grudge against the uh, centralized London prep, the London media in in Britain. Um, it's very different than the States. Everything is, is, is centred on London. And I'm an ex-journalist myself, so when I started my career in the 1980s, um, really, to, to get ahead, you had to work in London for a while. And I just really resented that. Um, and I think I've sort of, after decades, I kind of found my way to the history of uh, newspapers in the 19th century and found a, a time when... The, the British media wasn't so centralised and that um, the map, not everything, not all the lines went to London, but there were lots of little local centres dotted all around the map, um, producing very high quality journalism um, and often in advance of developments in London. So it was kind of working out my grudge against London. It, it's it was for me it was a it was a fascinating way to approach it because I, I keep thinking about uh, something I read in another book about uh, which sort of denigrated provincial journalism as you know somebody comes in and you ask the editor at this at this uh, local newspaper somewhere you know what it is they're going to be writing about and he basically the, I remember the, 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 the quote goes that he pulls a London paper down and circles a column and. That writes at the bottom. What do you think about this? And it, it really, it really does reflect that 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 bias that is you explain in your book. I, I think quite effectively. It is just so unfair and 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 and, and distorting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that did go on. There, there was scissors and paste journalism, as it was called, but it, it happened as much with the London papers, cutting bits out of. Um, regional local papers from the other parts of Britain as the other way around uh, and if you if you had some kind of heat map of Victorian Britain that picked up you know where news was moving from and to um, it wasn't just going out from radiating out from London it was it was going in the opposite direction equally and it was going quite you know far away from London from say between Manchester and Leeds or between Dublin and Edinburgh Birmingham and Bristol and and London was often cut out of these circuits as much as it was included so yeah it's very much um that these were little local centers that that in in a kind of narrow-minded provincial way you might say they saw themselves as a center of their worlds their little towns their, their small cities but in some ways that was true um 
the, the country was a much less centralised uh, state than it is now, both, both culturally and politically. And so, you you know, people, uh, educated people, professionals, they would get their news from a local or a regional paper first because it, it was tailored to their needs, what, what even their professional needs. Um, the Manchester Guardian could serve those needs better than the, the London Times could, for example. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us uh, a little something about what uh, the Victorian press was like, specifically the, the provincial press back then, because as you demonstrate, it's a very different media experience than what people today might be familiar with, even outside of the Internet, when, in terms of, as you described, you know, this, this central hubris of the London press, which simply wasn't there back then, because as you're describing it's a very different uh, media environment. It's a very different social environment. What was that environment like back then? And how and how is this reflected in the press? Um, at the at the start of the time that I'm looking at, which is about the middle of the 19th century, then um, it was reasonably easy with a few hundred pounds you, uh, you, and a, a, a printer that trusted that you'd pay your bills. You could set up uh, a little weekly uh, local newspaper uh, with very little capital, and um, so that it meant it's quite an open, free business environment. People coming in, going bust, and moving out again. But people with good ideas and, and ability, really having room to take off. Um, and they, the, these newspapers were very different than they are today. We think, all right, a local newspaper that's all about local news, but that was only a small part of what they contained. They had. Um, national news, they had international news, um, they produced a lot of their own features, they, they, they published history, poetry, it was, they were more a, a mixture of magazine and newspaper rather than just sort of str more straightforwardly news content that you might get today. Um, but they wouldn't have huge staffs, maybe one or two reporters on these small local weeklies, but they would have a, a quite a lot of uh, people people writing for them that weren't on the staff, just amateurs, experts in all sorts of obscure subjects. There might be an expert on the use of a particular type of, type of cow dung, or they might be an amateur <laughs> local historian, or they might be um, perhaps the local um, corn merchant who went to the nearest regional uh, corn market every day and, and he would bring back just reports of prices and, and drop them off at the newspaper office. So they had, they could call on quite a lot of local and regional experts um, beyond their staff. So um, but they really were you know, keenly read by everyone in, in the area. And even if you couldn't read, people would, would, would hear them read out loud to them. There's another aspect in your study that you, uh, or it, that, you know, plays a role in all this, which is just how much this environment is changing. I mean, 1855, you're talking about the end of the, the, the so-called knowledge taxes, but you're also yeah. talking about a time at which the uh, audience or the consumer base, if you will, of, you know, of, of newspapers is rapidly growing in ways that, you know, that, that really define or redefine what newspapers were back. Yes, so yeah, in all sorts of ways, um, literacy was was on a very very steep uh, upward curve. Um, more and more people were getting educated, but um, 
one of the things that fascinated me was that that whether or not you could read was was not a barrier to be able to get the news and to be able to hear the newspaper. So um, I give the example of uh, pubs, you know, bars, uh, where the landlord would actually pay someone to read the paper on, on the, the evening of the day it came out, usually a Saturday. And they would find someone that had a good dramatic reading voice that could, um, as I think it's how a Dickens character says, he, he can do the police in different voices. So if they're reading out a court case, that you know they could distinguish between the policeman giving evidence, the magistrate, the defendant, the witnesses, and bring that story alive in the pub, and everyone would be sat around listening to the news. Um, and so, so yeah, literacy or, or illiteracy wasn't particularly significant. I think what what really did change in the second half of the nineteenth century was that it went from not many people buying a newspaper that, that they might go to a public reading room or a newsroom to, to read it or they might go to the pub to hear it read or they, they might um, hear it read in the workshop sometimes. But increasingly as prices dropped and as you said that the taxes were taken off newspapers and it all became cheaper and cheaper, people could start to buy their own newspapers and publishers realised that um, there was money to be made out of working class newspaper readers, which was a pretty new idea. Um, and things like the Haypenny Evening Newspaper, um, and yeah, even the Haypenny Morning Paper and the Penny Weekly Paper. Um, I mean, we were we were way behind the states. I know you had your Penny Press in the early 1800s. It took us about another 50 or 60 years. But um, but when Publishers realised that here was this massive untapped market of people that would buy a paper rather than just eavesdropping on um, what um, was being written for other types of, of readers. Then they started uh, targeting their papers at that working class public and also at women and even at children. Um, and it, it, yeah, it produced a lot of different uh, types of newspapers and yeah, more varied, more interesting papers really. Given the scope of your project, it, it, it strikes me as one that could be so enormously overwhelming. And what you do in the book is you focus upon, while not ignoring the provincial press uh, generally, you focus on one example. And I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us a bit about Preston and what it was like as a uh, market and what were the newspapers that were in Preston during this time. Okay, so yeah, some of your listeners may not have heard of Preston in Lancashire. Hard to believe for myself. Um, um, uh, spent most of my life here. Um, it's uh, nowadays uh, we're proud that it was the first place in the UK to get a Kentucky Fried Chicken shop, even before London. Uh, we're <laughs> the biggest bus station in Europe. I'm mean, I could go on and on, but. Um, Back then, I mean, um, Karl Marx, for one, in fact, I opened the book in this way, he, he thought world revolution was going to begin in Preston because there was this very famous uh, strike of, well, it's actually a lockout by the, the mill owners in the 1850s and, and Dickens and Elizabeth Gaskell and other people wrote about this. And Marx was very interested in it as well. So it was, it was um, a cotton town, uh, spinning and weaving, also uh, had sort of ancillary industries. It was an old um, regional headquarters, so it had a lot of law courts, it had sort of regional administration. So it had a mixed economy, it wasn't just a working class town. Um, and 
it was uh, kind of the third centre of Lancashire. So there was Manchester in the southeast of the county, there was Liverpool on the coast to the west, and then north of those two was Preston, uh, kind of the third most significant uh, urban area. And it was on lots of transport routes, so it was kind of the obvious third newspaper centre for, for that area. And in, at that time, Lancashire, which had been in the lead of the Industrial Revolution, was therefore pretty highly populated, quite a densely populated area. So there were lots of potential customers. Um, and towns were pretty close together, sort of 10, 10 miles between a town, even five miles. But they were, they were quite distinctive. Um, I mean, it's still the case today. You can just travel... Yeah, 10 miles between one town and another in, in all around England, but especially in this part of the country. And the accent is completely different. The economy is different. The culture is different. Uh, the way people even dress and look is different. And that's true today and was probably even more so then. So although densely populated, still lots of distinct little um, local cultures, um, which was you know perfect for uh, a media industry, which... Uh, I, well, I argue that they, they made money out of um, selling people's local identities and people's local patriotism, selling that back to them through the local press. So you have this, you know, as you're describing this very diverse market, lots of, and, and at the same time, it's also a very concentrated one geographically, or at least it can yeah. be in, under the right circumstances. So who were the readers that who were you're talking about? Who was the audience for the newspapers? What were what were they like? You mentioned that you're talking about a diverse audience. Were, did somebody try to cater to the entire audience, or was it more of a? Uh, or were these newspapers generally targeted towards uh, specific groups? Uh, when newspapers were still expensive in the first half of the 19th century. They were targeted at um, middle-class people, really, and upper-class people. Um, it would cost you, I don't know, it would cost a workman perhaps a, uh, a couple of hours, two or three hours to earn the money to pay for a newspaper. Um, so, you know, today that would be, I don't know, in, in uh, dollars, but like, you know, 30 or $40 potentially. Um, uh, yeah, to, to get the price of a newspaper. So out, out of the reach of most working class people. Um, but then as prices came down, um, th they did start to broaden it out. Some some papers did try and reach all targets, particularly some of these these weekly newspapers. I mean, the, the focus in a lot of journalism history has been on the daily papers because somehow, I don't know, they're, they're kind of more exciting and the idea of speed and, and interesting. But... But when you actually look at what most people read, it was these humdrum local weekly papers. And they would try and uh, have something for everyone. So they would have a, a women's column. They would have even a children's corner. Um, they would have, towards the end of the century, they'd have columns about uh, trade union news, church news, uh, gardening notes, all these sort of magazine -y type features. Uh, but also some publishers thought, well, there's more money to be made by segmenting the market. So we'll have a, a halfpenny evening paper full of uh, sports news, racing news, football news, uh, and just the latest sort of breaking news. 
for workers coming out of the factory gate at uh, six o'clock at night. Then we'll have the traditional weekly, which we'll try and keep attractive to the, the, the middle class readers. And then we'll have a morning daily for the professionals um, that want to sort of their own local version of the London Times, really. Uh, with yeah, uh, stock market prices and Manchester cotton prices and all the latest Liverpool shipping news. So some, some publishers segmented the market, uh, whilst others trying to be something for everyone. One of the things that you go into detail about in the book that I thought was especially interesting was this notion of where they read. And you focus upon something that nowadays a lot of people tend to ignore when they're in a community and they see these places, which are these reading rooms. We, we uh, you know, we're familiar with libraries and you can go to any library today and you know, see people who are reading the newspapers and magazines there. But you, this was not just a matter of, you know, a, a, a public supported institution or a charitable supported institution. We are talking about these smaller places where, where people went, especially during that critical time that you described when they're going from being unable to afford a newspaper to where they start to become uh, subscribers themselves. What were these places like, and and how did they change during this period that you're that you're focusing on? Yeah, I mean, I, I found this absolutely fascinating because um, we just think of newspaper reading as being a, an individual, silent reading activity, uh, maybe when you're commuting or maybe when you're at home. But but to actually sort of go out of the house and there's. The diaries of a, a weaver called John Neal from a small town near Preston. Um, and he's great evidence because he was so boring that he wrote about reading the local newspaper. <laughs> and, and, and that's absolute gold for a, a historian like me. Um, but every Saturday night, he, he would walk a couple of miles into the nearest town to a pub that that carried newspapers so so he would read those in a pub in his village they, they did actually have a little um a mechanics institute like a uh, sort of adult education night school that had its own uh newspaper reading room um so, so some of them they were just rented rooms um just any old room that could be rented cheaply and some of the working class reading rooms they would charge you a penny a day um or you might, which would be kind of be affordable because the more middle class reading rooms, it might be, you know, one or two guineas per year, but they'd expect you to cough that up at the beginning of the year. And obviously that big lump sum was out of the reach of a lot of working class people. So some of them were just, there were, there were commercial concerns um, or just kind of a group of people clubbing together, perhaps through their local church or through the local mechanics institute. Hey, you know, let's get a, a newsroom going. And they'd often... They'd often start these newsrooms during uh, a particularly exciting war, so perhaps the Crimean War, perhaps the, the American Civil War. You can see a sort of uptick in the number of newsrooms that open. Uh, sometimes churches would offer them political parties. In the 1860s, um, uh, for the first time, a certain number of working class people got the vote. And political parties were anxious to, to get them over to their side. So they'd, they'd uh, lure them into uh, the party by having a, a newsroom, a reading room as part of their uh, political club. Um, and then towards the end of the century, uh, public libraries, um, publicly funded libraries, 
began to take off and and having newspapers and magazines there was a, a massive attraction in fact um it seemed to be that that when these public libraries opened it was the newspaper reading rooms that were more of an attraction than than the books the, the novels and, and so on so the whole a whole range and then things like the the retail cooperative movement this these sort of um uh, people clubbing together to sort of avoid being ripped off by uh, other shopkeepers or being cheated with, you know, chalk dust in their in their flour, set up these retail uh, cooperative shops that then also had um, newspaper reading rooms, often in a room above the shop, uh, and that was a, a very popular working class uh, cultural movement as well as a, a shopping movement as well, and, and they were a big place to go to read the paper. So. You've you're, what you describe here is both a, a, a surprisingly wide audience, a growing audience, and at the same time a, a very diverse audience. Yet you focus upon more than just the audience for these newspapers. You also describe how they were produced and who produced them. And and your your case study I, I thought was spent was very interesting. And I was wondering if you could perhaps um, you know perhaps speak a, a little generally as to how newspapers were produced back then. And then talk about this Preston uh, reporter slash editor who really, you know, I thought so nicely encapsulated the changes that are taking place during this period. Yeah, so I mean, I, I chose Preston as a case study because this is where I'm based, and I know that the, there's good archives and, and, and a, sort of an interesting history of papers. But I've also res- what I've tried to do is try and uh, look at the local press as a national phenomenon, which kind of blows people's minds in a way. But if you think that the national is made up of lots of locals, then it's not such a weird idea, really. So I have looked at uh, the whole national map of local papers all around the country. And the same trends come up um, in other places as they do in this case study town of Preston. So, yeah, I sort of went into some depth just to see what what can come out by really going into local depth and um luckily enough um again yeah preston is a good case study because there are these diaries of this journalist that you mentioned anthony hewitson who um started as a printer's apprentice at the age of 14 and then became a newspaper reporter he taught himself shorthand uh, and then he um, got some money and, and bought a small local paper in Preston and then uh, bought papers elsewhere. And luckily for us, he, he wrote a diary um, from fairly early on in his, in his reporting career. And strangely enough, it's the only diary that, that I know of, of an English provincial journalist. There, there's there's only maybe three or four um, diaries of, of, new, of journalists that worked in London but no others that I know of, and no one else has come up with any for the 19th century uh, from from yeah the local newspaper world. So it is it, it's it's great stuff. Um, and his diaries just show this national networked, decentralised nature of the local press. He's um, he's always got an eye for the main chance. So whenever he comes across a good story like a train crash. He thinks, right, I can sell that to papers in Sheffield and Manchester and Glasgow and London. And so he's sending off telegrams and uh, sort of carbon copies of his report. And in fact, he, he, seems to, he admits sometimes he spends more time on his sort of 
secret freelancing career than on what he's actually paid to do by, <laughs> by, by his employer as a, as a staff reporter. Um, and I think that's eventually the reason why he gets sacked, to be honest. But he, um, he, he does write about the sort of the mechanics of reporting and editing and the, the social networks. If, if there's a big story in Preston, then reporters come from other parts of the country and he, he'll go out for a drink with them and they'll sort of, you know, network professionally. Um, and you get a sense of, of the speed and the distance that you might cover either by walking or by um, horse and cart or sometimes by train. Um, just getting around the, the north of Lancashire to get the stories uh, and then working late into the night to, to get the, the paper to press. And it is, I mean, the, the diary is fantastic because it, um, he goes from, yeah, being a reporter on, on quite a big um, sort of radical liberal newspaper to having his own paper and it, his politics change and his theology changes. And um, as an editor, he has sort of labor troubles um, the printers want a pay rise, so he sacks them all and employs non-union labour instead. So there's all sorts of insights. And when uh, you start following up some of these little bare one-sentence diary entries, you just dis- you stumble across whole other stories that, that shed so much light on, on, on the way that the press worked. Um, and you can connect. I mean, in the book, I sort of I take one of these stories that he reports of a quite a big train crash. Um, outside Preston and he says that he's writing this for other newspapers and we're lucky nowadays that so many Victorian newspapers have been digitised so you can you can sort of very quickly search for a particular story and I follow how this um, kind of ripples out from Preston you know it sends a copy off to the Times so it's in the Times the next morning and it's some of the other big city papers around the country and then the smaller weeklies follow it up and then a news agency gets involved and sort of takes a story off him. And then it sort of spreads again, the second wave. Uh, and you can, like I say, I don't know, I mean, perhaps I need to work with some um, computer uh, visualisation expert. But again, if you have this sort of heat map or some way of watching this train crash story just spread out from Preston on some sort of electronic map of Victorian Britain, um, I've tried to get a sense of, of that, of how the news moved and how quickly it moved and how it was processed and shortened or different aspects were focused on. If there was a casualty from a certain city, then that city's newspapers would focus on that. All the stuff we're familiar with, but, but, but that was happening there and he, he's writing about it in his diary. So you can, you can connect up the, you can join the dots by uh, researching these diary entries. So yeah, it's it's a great project. And I mean, in fact, that's what I'm working on at the moment, um, just writing an introduction and footnotes to these diaries. Hmm. Um, I'm hoping to get those out in the next year or so. Uh, Another thing I I liked that you did with him, with with Hudson, was you, you you don't really focus upon this, but you do show how, as he continues his journalistic career, how he prospers. And, and I thought that was interesting in terms of what it said about what motivated people to do this, the, the very notion that it wasn't, we don't, and nowadays we oftentimes talk about uh, journalism as a civic enterprise, but for these people, it was not just uh, a living uh, and, and a remunerative one, but it was one in which they could actually enjoy uh, a degree of, of, of uh, social uplift, that they could improve their status and they go from being sort of this 
maybe working class person who, you know, uh, gets into this as a career to they can you know be a small business owner and and and, and prosper and act and, and rise up to the ranks of the middle class. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, there were lots of success stories like this Hewitson guy from Preston. Um, many of them, you know, went much far further and they they went beyond the local to to the national. Um, and quite a lot of um, newspaper owners, Victorian newspaper owners, became MPs, members of parliament, politicians. Um, and that was as as people like Rupert Murdoch show. That's um, you know the, the the link between politics and the media um, is a very uh, yeah profitable link if you play it the right way. Um, so yeah, he, he started as an apprentice, which wasn't the lowest of the low. Um, your parents had to pay quite a substantial amount in a, in a bond to the employer, you know, on the promise that you wouldn't get drunk and smash the machinery. Um, <laughs> so he's kind of up, yeah, sort of skilled working class craftsman. But yes, he he moved up the social strata, and you can see he he stops worshipping in kind of nonconformist Methodist and Baptist chapels. And Unitarian chapels and goes over to the, the sort of established Church of England, which is where you probably network with uh, wealthier people. And um, he, um, in fact, when he, he sold his newspaper when he got to only about his mid-50s, but in the census he describes himself as a gentleman um, after that. So, yeah, he, he retired quite nicely. Uh, but I think he entered the market in... After the newspaper taxes were abolished at mid-century, it was a bit of a free-for-all. Um, the market was in turmoil. People were trying out all sorts of things. You know, so will these working-class people actually buy newspapers? How much can we charge them? What do they want to read? And there were all sorts of um, creative experiments, most of which you know failed miserably. But the people that that, that uh, struck gold, uh, yeah, could become very, very rich. Um, I was thinking the best example of that was in your chapter about the relationship between the uh, Preston media and uh, the development of association football. And I thought it was uh, interesting in that respect because nowadays it's sort of a, a, a given that, that, that sports is a, a very established and, and, and valued feature of it. I, I, I know so many people throughout my life who the first news they check is the sporting news. And yet, as you describe it, 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 it was hardly a established phenomenon from the first. And, and you talk about it on, on two levels that I thought were really interesting. One was how, you know, the market was just developing this niche, which is now so huge and how presses that uh, tried to, you know, people that tried to start, you know, sports specific presses don't really do very well, but also at the same time, how it gets tied into this notion of, of place and identity that you talk about as well. Yeah, um, it was just, a, I think it was a happy coincidence that um, organized sport, um, like with regular fixtures and, and leagues um, and championships, all that sort of infrastructure that makes sport regular and predictable as an event. You know, we know on Saturday there will be a football match, for example, or there, there will be a horse race at this place. All that infrastructure started being created just at the same time as the provincial press was taking off. And so much of sport, I mean, in England, it's it's uh, that football game with the round ball that, is, that was the big thing then and still is now. Uh, although other sports like rugby and cricket to a lesser extent, um, but there's this sort of... 
um, almost tribal local patriotism. You know, the same as with them in the States as well, the connection between the local sports team and local identity. And that was an obvious connection with, with the local press, that here was something that uh, made people proud of where they lived, that they wanted to read about it, they wanted to um, chew the fat about it, speculate, they wanted to gather those statistics that fans love and, and you know have those arguments about who, who scored the most or who got the most fouls against them. And the press was the perfect vehicle for expressing that and supplying that need. Um, and, I th yeah, I think I mentioned that at the very small local level, when some people tried to have, yeah, a sports-only newspaper in a small town like Preston, the market wasn't big enough. In, in, in the um, bigger cities, that was sustainable. But then 10 years later, the market had changed. Football had become more popular. And there were now enough people to, to support that. So, so the, the the sort of mainstream evening newspaper on a Saturday could have an extra purely sports edition late in the evening after the match had been played. And this weird thing that people had been to the match, they'd, they'd seen every goal, they knew what had happened, but they were the primary readership to buy the, the, the sports paper and then read what they already knew, that their team had won or lost them. <laughs> And who'd made it? We'll win or lose. So yeah, it, it, it was it was a, a marriage made in heaven, really, between local sport and local media. There was, of course, the flip side of that, which I which you explore, which I also thought was equally interesting because it just never occurred to me. Which is how you know, as this was taking off, it was also something that you could ignore, and that gets to Hewitson, who I, I thought had this very fascinating disdain for uh, football. And, and, and tying back to that, that class rise and how he starts to think of himself as more of a gentleman, which occurred right around that time. And, and how yeah. he's, he, you describe how, you know, he's, you know, actively refusing to, uh, to, to cover football in his newspaper at a time when you would think that, you know, editors would be wanting to put whatever is in there that's going to, you know, uh, you know, sell papers. He's, he has a very different attitude. Yeah. I think he was, he was, a bit of a cantankerous uh, old gent, you know, especially when he got into the middle age, and he just thought he knew better than the readers, and that's a very dangerous attitude <laughs> in, in the media. Um, he just thought it was a passing fad, uh, and he, he he disliked the gambling that was associated with it. So he thought, yeah, I'll, I'll give that one a miss. It's not, that that one's not going anywhere. I won't waste my time on that. But unfortunately, his competitors in the local market. Thought differently and thought, well, this is yeah, working class readers like this. They're the people we're now trying to expand our market to. So we're going with it, um, even whether they, they might be holding their noses and thinking, well, yes, I don't really approve either. But they they were just a bit more commercially minded than Hewitson. But yeah, he, he hated it, and he when he I think too late he realised he'd missed the boat. He could look out of his office window and he could see the crowds in the street outside his competitors' offices. <laughs> waiting for the scores and waiting for their their detailed match reports that, that Hewitson had, had uh, foolishly decided not to provide. Yeah, and my hunch is that, um, I mean, the market was changing and for all sorts of reasons, but one reason why I think his paper started to decline was that he missed out on probably the biggest trend in local journalism from the 1880s onwards, yeah, which was uh, football. You... 
uh, this actually ties uh, very nicely into uh, something that you were talking about uh, uh, earlier in the book. And also it's something that you're expanding upon the final portion, which is this notion of, you know, how these papers reflected their communities. And you mentioned how uh, some of these, like, for example, the people that were buying these newspapers to uh, see the football results were the players themselves. And, you just, and I thought that was really interesting how you get into this issue of or this 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 you know consideration of how you know people love to see their name in print and and how this is reflected not just in those people who purchased issues where they were in them and they already knew what the what the news was but about how they would you know actively seek to get published and you, I especially was struck by the compositor whose proudest moment was when he set the type uh, for a letter that he himself had written for the newspaper that had been that was going to be printed. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, that that's what makes local media so special, really, today, and and, and what seemed to be there in the, in the Victorian age, that people basically want to see their lives reflected in the local media, and somehow it makes their lives seem more significant, and their their little town or village or city somehow um, it's it's made immortal in some kind of way the fact that it's been recorded in the local media uh, in victorian times it was in black and white in print and yes for, for people to see their own names as photography was introduced to see their own faces um and the, the, the traditional you know I went, I went into journalism in the 1980s but the thinking on local papers there was get as many names and as many faces into the paper uh, and, and that's how you sell papers. I mean, even today, when, whenever I go to any different place around Britain or anywhere, really, I always buy a copy of the local newspaper. And some of these traditional papers are still using that same technique. And if, if you lived in that town and you opened the paper on a Thursday or a Saturday and there was no mention of you in it or your family, then you'd know that you died, really, because just everyone... Um, and their lives get covered somehow. And I, th I, think, I think there's something magical in it. It somehow makes places and people almost like sacred. You know, it gives them this sort of magical glow if they are mentioned in, in the local press. Um, and so, yes, people, people uh, I mean, I use, there's a famous media theorist called James Carey who said people don't read newspapers to get new information. They read the newspaper in a ritual sort of way to have their worldview confirmed that, that I matter, my life matters, my kids' dancing show matters. Um, you know, the the history of this place where I've decided to spend my life matters, uh, and this newspaper is telling me, yes, it's important. Here we are. We've written about it this week, um, and to me, that's that's what made it saleable and that's what the editors realized and they, they, they sold this stuff back to the readers they, they reflected these lives back to the readers who lapped it up and and that gets to what, where you're talking about how you know for how the way that these papers you know did that by mirroring their communities in not just in terms of okay here are their faces here are their names but they're capturing their uh, their their dialect. They're 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 really yeah. They really do. They, they don't. They really are. You know, embodiments of those. You know, as you described at the very beginning, these very distinct differences that exist over a rel in a relatively limited space. Yeah. So so an, an editor or a publisher they could apply 
a formula. And I, I tried to sort of spell out what that formula was, you know, almost like this is how to run a Victorian local newspaper. Not actually a very useful formula nowadays, but, but this is, <laughs> these are the techniques um, that they followed. Um, and you might say, well, that's just, yeah, it's just generic stuff. That is, it is, it's just formulaic. But when, as you say, when you apply it to one town that has this type of dialect, then the formula produces different results than in the next town 10 miles away that has a different dialect, a different economy, different local references, uh, different local metaphors, you know, that come from the cotton industry or that come from coal mining, uh, different working hours, different working conditions, perhaps different trade union strengths. Um, so that formula, yeah, produced sort of unique local results, even when it was, and, and yeah, outsiders sometimes did come in and just applied the formula very successfully and produced a locally distinctive newspaper that, that met the needs of those local readers. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Okay, so um, as I mentioned, the, these diaries of this uh, local reporter and then later editor, Anthony Hewitson, there's 17 volumes of, of them in the local archives here. So... Um, with one of his ancestors, one of his, um, yeah, ancestors, is that the right word? No, the other way around. One of his descendants, um, we've transcribed them all, and I'm now working through them and adding footnotes and researching the background to them, ready to to publish them, um, both online in a searchable open access format, but also as a, a print book, because they are unique and um, there's enough that's interesting beyond just the history of journalism. And just about life in the 19th century and about his servant. He was always sacking servants. They were never quite right, um, as well as his sort of journalistic life and his family life. Mm-hmm. So that's the uh, that's the project at the moment. Will you also be publishing that book with uh, the Open Book Publishers? I'm hoping so. They haven't given me an answer yet, um, but, but I'm hoping so. Um, yeah, they're... they're an open access publisher, which means that you can download the whole of my book that we've been talking about for free. It's, it's there on the Open Book Publishers website. Um, or if you want, you can you can get the Kindle edition for a bit of money or the, the print edition for a bit of money. But it's it's this idea of yeah, just sort of making job knowledge freely available. Um, so I'm hoping the diaries will be people that way as well. For me as an academic historian, um, I decided to go with them because in the hope that my book would be more widely read and more widely used and it's, you know, it's be more influential in this field of history that I work in. And although I won't get any royalties from it, the royalties from academic publishing are notoriously bad anyway. So I thought, <laughs> you know, what have I lost? And I, I thought oh, there's more to gain from taking the open access route. Well, I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's, it was a great choice because it, it's a great resource. I, I was fortunate to have a, a, a printed edition, which was very nicely put together. But having that resource, I do hope that it helps to get your book the audience it deserves. Thank you very much. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Mark. Okay. Thank you. Bye.